My name is Amy Foster-Taylor and you're listening to The Drop. The Drop is an investigative, mindful and creative dive into the future. Each episode will ask a question or investigate an issue around equality, sustainability or a better future. So this episode's about migration and when I first suggested it to you guys, I know you were a bit hesitant and to be honest, so was I. The thing is when we're crafting different paths and ideas towards a more sustainable future, I like to consider what the human futures are that we want to sustain. Like surely that's the point. And I'm constantly moved by people and their inspiring stories, but I'm perplexed at how people are portrayed in the media and are often not welcomed when all they've done is been born in a different country to ourselves. None of us have that story that equals the hardship that people are facing. And so we don't have that first-hand experience. So Amy and I are from England, uh, Bronwyn's from Canada and Claire's from America. And we kind of don't really realise our privilege at first until we got older, really, that it's you don't we don't really have to think twice about traveling to other countries or um, thinking about working or living somewhere else and none of us have ever been forcibly displaced. Yeah and I think that was probably why I felt so uncomfortable initially with the prospect of this episode because you know I think it's really difficult for us to talk about experiences that we have no experience of. Originally I felt uncomfortable too especially talking about migration with these issues just seem so distant from us. But then actually listening to Amy's interview when she talks to Nas, who's been seeking asylum for the last nine years and living in Birmingham, I thought that's so many people's story and Birmingham is not that far away. So really, these stories aren't as um, far as they seem. And and I was also so touched, like listening to his story, you realise how long he's been just trying to li- live his life and he's just kind of stuck in this limbo. And I just basically realised how flawed the system is. Well, that's the thing, like we can't avoid talking about migration when the current reality as explored through these interviews isn't good and it isn't something that any of us would kind of want or advocate for. And by avoiding this current reality of humanity when we speculate possible futures, we're completely leaving it to this, you know, like the singular negative media narrative, which is dehumanising. And actually the whole issue is just really underreported and it can just perpetuate this problem and create a divide. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we can't be the only ones that are feeling a bit ignorant about this. And I guess that's why, I mean, Amy, when I first saw the episode and that it's like over an hour, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, but I think this is, it's good that this episode is longer. It's, these issues are really deep and complex. And then we still haven't even, we've just scratched the surface of this episode, but I think it's a quite good kind of entry into these issues. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about people here and they're essentially human stories and people just like, you or I who deserve to have a dignified life choice and agency. And, you know, I find it to be such a complex issue, but that fundamental idea shouldn't be complex and it should be a reality. Mm, Definitely. That's why I feel so fortunate to have interviewed the four people we have in this episode. They're a real mix of like creative storytellers and also a charity. And all of them just place the human story at the heart of the issue. So in addition to Nas, we also have Alice Aidy, who's a documentary photographer. And I found she had such a fascinating perspective, having had spent so much time with refugees and migrants herself. I really resonated with her point about vernacular and word choice and remembering having a similar realization myself, where being white, you kind of have this privilege of being called an expat abroad versus an economic migrant. 
Um, which also circles back to the conversation about responsibility where, you know, we are the ones who've created this narrative and therefore the ones who need to change it. Yeah. And thinking about the conversation of, um, about responsibilities of the last episode, again, initially I thought this is a giant leap from, from my episode around supply chains and fashion to suddenly talking about the sort of refugee crisis. But actually listening to Amy's second guest, uh, Lisa Doyle, who is the head of advocacy at Refugee Council, I realise there's so many parallels between my conversation with Luke Impact and Lisa's. It's just kind of made me see the connection between how all of these vulnerable people that Luke was talking about in supply chains, especially in, in England, a lot of them probably are people that are seeking asylum that I hadn't realised up until then aren't allowed to work. And so these are the people that tend to get exploited and are probably make up a vast majority of modern day slaves, effectively. So finally, we spoke to the artist Lucy Orta about her Antarctica World Passport. What I found interesting about your interview with Lucy is how she says that when she started her work in 1992, she was um, drawing on the idea of people living in tents and she made all this tentware um, and it was really heavily criticised and how everyone sort of said, oh, there's how can you depict people like this? There's no integrity. But actually now we are so desensitised to those images and it's quite a common sight for you to go out on the streets of London and see people that are living in tents or sleeping bags. And I guess that's also what's interesting about um, Alice's work is it's kind of an antidote to that. Lucy's work also got me thinking about futures, which, you know, is essentially what this podcast is about. And Antarctica for her represents a place of hope, you know, a world without borders, which is obviously an amazing idea. But, you know, in our current divisive state, is that concept too far off? So the Antarctica World Passport kind of reminded me in in a way of an idea called the humanitarian visa. So when I spoke to Alice, she mentioned how we need visionaries and she recommended a TED talk by this guy called Alexander Betts, who essentially said that in the age of globalization and things where we have things like budget air travel, why are people drowning at sea? And we really need to transform the way we look at the refugee issue and find opportunities So using things like a humanitarian visa could save lives. It could remove the chaos from the front lines of these issues. It can also do stuff like undercut the smuggler market. And I was so surprised to have learned that the Refugee Convention was established in 1951 and hasn't really even been changed since then, which to me demonstrates an imperative to modernize solutions. You know, even using technology that already exists to, you know, preference match refugees to countries or communities sort of similar to dating apps, where we can have the possibility to not only ask refugees where they want to go, but also find where their skills could best be used. These are really interesting ideas, um, and it's great that we talk about it, but I think, guys, before we get ahead of ourselves, we have to remember that this topic is kind of a lot, and it's quite overwhelming, and I think it's really hard to think about those futures and those visions before we really understand and know the present situation. Um, I think this is why this episode is so great, because it takes just a very exploratory approach to these issues so um we're just trying to understand more about what the issues are what people's needs are before we even try and problem solve so i think that just approach is needed so much where at first instance you kind of survey and you just are open and you just listen before you start trying to problem solve or think about the future too much as well as obviously volunteering or donating to organizations one of the most important things that our guests talked about was you know, re- remaining open, curious, you know, asking questions and feeling like you can have that conversation with 
you know, your neighbor or the guy down at the pub who has a different opinion than you and feel empowered to challenge those ideas and change that narrative. Well, I think that's the perfect place to start listening to the conversations. So let's begin with Alice. So Alice is a documentary photographer and filmmaker whose work focuses on migration, women's rights and environmental issues. She spent much of the past couple of years in Greece, Serbia and France within refugee camps, but also Iran, Somaliland and most recently Kiribati, a low-lying island in the Pacific which is seriously under threat due to climate change. And honestly, I could talk to Alice all day long, because not only do I love her work, but I also love her really open and curious and kind approach that no matter what places the human at the centre. So to start off, I wanted to find out how Alice began telling these stories. I was always passionate um, about photography sort of as a, re- a really a basic hobby. Um, I was always sort of the family photographer on like holidays. Um, but I studied politics university um, and I guess I always knew I wanted to at some point use photography and documentary film, um, which I was so passionate about, but I hadn't done myself. But um, for me, I wanted to translate these big sort of political themes that I'd learned about at university um, and translate them visually. So when I went to Calais, thought I would just go for a weekend um, to volunteer, had no idea that I would d- define the, the following two, two and a half years. Um, but I, I brought a camera with me, you know, really cheap sort of low quality camera at the time. And I, once I sort of gained the courage to take photos, um, I came back at some point and before I set off to Greece, after Calais, I thought I should really take, get a proper camera. So I invested in what looking back seemed like a crazy amount of money. Um, it was a crazy amount of money, especially because I didn't identify as a photographer. It, it was a sort of professional standard camera. And I thought I was mad and my mum thought I was mad. But yeah, every day, camera around my neck. Um, and when I saw a photo or uh, saw an image, yeah, that I, th- I thought was worth taking, I would. But it was very much a sort of secondary thing to my volunteering. Because I was a volunteer sort of long term over f- um, months on end that I sort of had the opportunity to tell different stories maybe than other journalists who were there just for two days or, or short periods of time. Um, and... Over these months, I sort of developed very intimate relationships with people I met and it became increasingly important to me to document what I was seeing, you know, uh, suffering, sort of desperation, um, the boredom, self-harm, sort of the extent of issues, also joy and happiness and, and, you know, incredible dignity of people. But especially through portraiture, I guess I was very aware of how the refugee crisis was being talked about in the press. And of course, these big headline issues and in newspapers, they're always these shocking, overwhelming statistics, these intangible numbers. When I was researching this episode, I kept stumbling across the numbers like 65.6 million forcibly displaced people worldwide, 10 million of which are stateless, which just seems so huge and so shocking and very difficult to get your head around. When you write about these things, people are reduced to like, a number or large groups of people are clumped together in one description. 1.3 million people crossing the Mediterranean, that sort of seems incredibly overwhelming, but what about the people behind the statistics? I felt it was really important to tell individual human stories of the people I'd met. There's this amazing thing by Chimamanda 
Ngozi Adichie. So it's a TED talk and it's called The Danger of a Single Story. And she just talks much more eloquently than, than me about having a single narrative for a group of people and how deeply damaging that is. This TED talk that Alice is referring to by Chimamanda is particularly relevant to this episode. She uses three brilliant and personal examples of how being presented with a singular narrative can alter and hinder your perception of reality, which is in turn so damaging. The TED talk will be linked in the show notes and it's really worth listening to. Just like Chimamanda, Alice is a wonderful storyteller, but only a few years ago she didn't identify as a photographer and now her photos have had an impact on a large audience. So I was interested to find out how Alice made this move and then the impact that this kind of self-identification had on the photos that she was taking. At one point, sort of thought I should start an Instagram account and I started to put them up and sort of to my total surprise, people began to resonate with the images, but still didn't identify as a photographer and slightly not a photojournalist. Um, and then and then I started to get work published and sort of, I guess it, it gave me the confidence to sort of self-identify. And then once I identified, it really gave me the confidence to think actually maybe this, you know, there is a real purpose to this. Um, and it became easier and easier for me to approach people, which is always a really difficult thing in photography. It's so, so, but I always say that, you know, people talk about a, what, how do you balance sort of personal interaction with being a documentarian and I say, you know, I ne- I've never found that balance and I don't think there is that balance. For me, I, I'm really not a technical photographer at all. It's like 90% of it is the interaction with the person. And then the, f- the photo is like the, the last thing. So going back to the kind of refugee camp and your experiences yeah. there and those interactions, obviously these are very vulnerable people mm. living in camps. And I wondered what this meant for their sense of identity not being able to just freely move i remember so much what people would say is we thought europe was a paradise i just remember that sentence they would they would always talk about how they had expected europe to be um they had such high expectations and it really always made me think about how like films or like popular culture what they you know, it's so easy to understand how you might watch a music video and think that's sort of a realistic representation of how we live. So they had these amazing expectations of life in Europe and they were just desperately disappointed by the conditions in which they were living when they arrived. They couldn't believe, they would always say, we're being treated like animals, we're like animals. Europe thinks we're animals. Donald Trump called them animals. Right, that was unbelievable. Yeah. Having studied the Rwandan genocide that was a big thing that I um, specialised in in my degree and looking at how language in politics and rhetoric you know it's a really really slippery slope you start to call people I mean in Rwanda it was sort of cockroaches and things but when David Cameron calls you know swarms of migrants and this language this derogatory language like economic migrants um, has such a profound impact on like the narrative of a, a country anyway so back to movement I I think to not be able to move and to have basically no agency over your day-to-day goings-on is the most delegitimizing thing and I think for parents it's sort of the most hard um they have to not be able to tell their kids that things are going to be okay or how the following day will be or if they're going to be able to go back to school a total loss of agency not only over movement um or the freedom to move but also on your meal times you know a total loss of age. I think 
humans are able to sustain really bad conditions I think it's not so much that it's just a total lack of control over your life which is um, really really difficult you mentioned then the role of the parent children are often referred to as the ultimate victims of the crisis which is understandable but there was a guardian article that you wrote and there was something that really struck me and stayed with me about the concept of parents feeling like they'd failed their children and it just really resonated me i'm not a parent but i feel like those kind of ideas are so human and so i wondered about these kind of universal stories and experiences yeah well I guess that that's an important point. What I want to highlight in photo- photography and especially through portraiture is sort of if you're looking into the eyes of someone, you are hopefully that's a that's a tool to build empathy and you're looking at sort of shared values and um, shared characteristics rather than differences from these people, even though they're from the other side of the world. But it's so important to sort of remember the universal experiences. I mean, I'm also not a parent, but you can imagine that parents, one thing they really understand is the idea that you just want the best thing for your child. Um, And any parent across the world, I think, can sort of uh, identify with that feeling. And I I think, of course, children are absolutely victims of the crisis, but um, I would say that for parents who really are able to understand their situation much better and understand why it's happened and the injustice of it and the consequences of what is happening in their lives and the consequences of the suffering um, and the lack of autonomy I think it's probably much much worse it's not good for anyone but I think it's particularly difficult for parents who feel they've failed their children so earlier you mentioned how you kind of place the human at the heart of the story and the kind of relationship that you build with the people that you're photographing, which I think is so important because of this negative collective image that the media perpetuates. And often, you know, for me and for others, say living in London, we're so far away from these issues. And if that kind of image is the only thing that we see, it's so problematic. So I wondered whether you could tell me more about those kind of techniques that you use and also how you kind of navigate um, telling a story truthfully and not exploitatively poverty porn is I guess a word that's or phrase that's banded around a lot so um the first thing was sort of realizing how uh, desensitized people were to uh familiar images that they were seeing of the refugee crisis boats arriving on greek shores um or even sort of the violence or bombings going on at home in syria for example um and I really wanted to my work to stand apart from that Um, and to really focus on the individuals because I feel that when you see an image that's so familiar to you you're able to uh, not engage with it you're desensitized to it you've seen it so many times and when you're desensitized and disengaged you also shred any sort of responsibility that you might have to get involved or help um, or you know be disappointed with your government or whatever it's going to be to um, improve the situation you can totally ignore and turn a blind eye to people's suffering. Um, So I was very aware of this, and I guess for me personally, I sort of decided that portraiture might be a sort of antidote to that, you know, really focusing on the individual and the humans. Part of my work is I really try to um, not portray people sort of immediately as victims or uh, sort of obviously suffering. I really try not to do that. so crucial to that is consent um, and 
luckily the distance at which I take photos of people is you can't not have a conversation or establish relationship with them um, but that's hugely important I think the months in the, in the in the refugee camps whilst I was volunteering I saw so many different photographers operate and you know it, that extended from huge um, zoom lenses where you know you could be stood me tens of meters away and not engage with the person at all and I really felt so uncomfortable about that I really could never do that myself um, photography can humanize and I just think it's your role as a journalist or storyteller and photographer to get consent and not be unethical I of course would love a world in which people were treated and viewed as equals but I know it's far from the case and actually within migrant communities alone, there are hierarchies. And so I really wanted to talk to Alice more about this. What I didn't expect was that Alice would provide context around Afghanistan, drawing parallels on the conversation you'll hear later with Nas, a guy who was born in Afghanistan, came to the UK when he was 13, and nine years later, he's terrified that he'll be sent back. So this was really insightful. What really struck me during my time is there was this clear um, hierarchy in the asylum process, even though we weren't doing anything to help the situation in Syria. If you were a refugee fleeing war in Syria, you're considered sort of legitimate um, migrant. And it struck me that sort of Af Afghans, even though you know we've been at conflict in Afghanistan, they've had a war for 40 years. Um, it was last year, I think was the most lethal, although the highest number of civilian um, casualties ever. And yet, you're not considered a legitimate migrant if you're coming from Afghanistan. And much like uh, many of the migrants coming from um, sub-Saharan Africa and traveling through Libya and into across the Mediterranean and into Italy, you are sort of put in the box of being an economic migrant. And this is a seriously sort of degrading term, which basically implies that you're um, coming to take advantage of the benefit system or moving for illegitimate reasons. But um, I heard this saying and it came out of the mouth of my friend Hassan who's a refugee and when he said it it was you, you know you, you can't help but sort of like catch your breath and just think god that's so bad but he said um, if you're white you're an expat and it just made me think don't we move for economic reasons for opportunities to different countries the European Union was was established based on that the freedom of movement um, it is fundamental to the human existence that we do everything we can to improve our situation, better living conditions, a better job. It's just natural and I don't understand how um, it's basically deeply racist that we don't understand that or see it like that for people who might be coming from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. I think it makes, of course, people are moving for economic reasons and it shouldn't be a degrading um, term and there are also I mean to escape poverty and conflict is of, of course uh, legitimate wouldn't you or I you know we all would do so and you can't put everyone together in the same category because as you say people are moving for all sorts of reasons and so I wondered whether you could talk more about your experiences outside of refugee camps having taken photos during the refugee crisis I felt more invigorated than ever to continue taking photos um, and telling stories sort of visually and, and recently I've moved a lot towards documentary but recent trips I went to Iran where again there was sort of, the, sort of this very um, negative uh, and 
black and white media narrative about Iran. Iran is bad. And I was so desperate to sort of see for myself. I think that's something I was like, I always want to make my own judgments about something. So I'm like, no, I'm going to go there myself. And that was the same for the different refugee camps and certainly for Calais and and then the same with Iran. And then after that, um, Somalia. So this podcast is about kind of sustainable um, planetary and human futures. And when we talk about sustainability, part of the reason for doing this episode is if we're trying to sustain the planet, what for? We need to put the humans at the centre if that's who we're sustaining it for, um, which is why these kind of stories are so important. But then also there's a whole kind of environmental piece even within migrant crisis. And you recently came back from Kiribati. Yeah. So could you tell me more about that? Yeah, so I learned about this island called uh, Kiribati, spelt Kiribati, and um, it's a one of the most remote um, island nations in the world, and it's the most low-lying country, I think. Um, at its highest level, it's two meters above sea level, um, and it's a it's an island nation, but it's a collection of atolls essentially. A hundred thousand people spread over these um, islands, and it's sort of remarkable when you're there it's one the main uh the biggest island Tarawa is um a long thin strip of land so that when you're standing in the middle it's so thin you can see both the sea on the right and the left um and it's really not hard to understand how one sort of tidal surge would wipe it out and that's the situation in the next 50 years they're under threat from rising sea levels and I learned about the the previous government there amazing climate activist the the ex-president who is is no longer in power and in fact the current government are climate skeptics sort of astonishingly but as part of his campaign to raise awareness um, about the threat of climate change to his island he also alongside that bought some land in Fiji uh, through a scheme called migrate with dignity and the idea was uh, to buy land for his population of Kiribati to move home before they're forced to as climate refugees. And when we arrived, we, we were surprised in a way, I guess, that there was no, no chance they were, they were leaving home. They were so proud of home. The, the press had sort of painted a picture of an island desperate to get the world's attention and talk about climate change and the threat to their island. And when we arrived, we were so shocked to sort of see that actually a huge majority of people were climate skeptics. They didn't believe in climate change um, and that was we learnt sort of very linked with religion and um, a lot of people would say to us oh you know we believe God has a plan for us and others would say of course we can see it's visible erosion look here you know my house used to be here and it fell into the sea so it was a real a real mix but yeah it was a surprise to learn that people were climate skeptics but of course it makes sense because climate change is a long-term issue and they on the island have a huge number of very urgent uh, short-term issues, serious overpopulation, hugely high obesity and diabetes rates. Um, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. So they have, you know, short-term issues. Part of the island is so overpopulated, it's as populated as Hong Kong. Um, but if you bear in mind, Hong Kong is built upwards, you know, in skyscrapers. And here you can't build above one sort of bungalow level because the, the, the land would literally sink. Um, so it was an un- un- unbelievable trip, yeah. Yeah, we often talk um, at the job about trying to engage and unengage and how you do that and whether it's worth doing that. But then it's that's one thing when you're talking 
I guess say here in London to people but then talking to the people who are actually at the centre and the heart of the issue that must be such a tricky thing to see. Yeah so the government are really against they forbid journalists from coming and talking about climate change and we didn't have an official film permit so we are essentially there covering climate change without the government's permission. I mean and I think it was also a question of education the more educated people I desperate to talk about climate change um it's an, it's absolutely a matter of priority and of course how can the you know the continuing existence of your island nation not be an absolute priority alice's role as a documentary photographer is of course that of a storyteller so while finding and documenting the story is probably the largest part of the process telling the story to an audience is what's really important you know like getting the message out so i wanted to find out how she does this and how her photos can actually make an impact i, I was very lucky to have an image a portrait of a 11-year-old Syrian girl called Yamama um, who I became very close with. It was published on the front page of The Guardian and it was for their Christmas. Every Christmas they do a big fundraiser. And that year the theme was child refugees and it became the most successful fundraising campaign they'd ever had. I can't remember exactly how much they raised, but it was an astonishing amount of money. And I really remember that was that felt like such a important point in my journey that for once I could see the tangible impact of you know taking an image and I think with social media you don't see that. Being in London we feel so far away from these issues but then actually when you think about kind of our actions throughout history and still today we are so closely connected to these communities that we've spoken about and especially when it comes to kind of climate change and disasters we're maybe the least vulnerable to disruption and then we're also the least welcoming to migrants. So how do you think we can kind of strive for greater universal equality? Is that what we should maybe be striving for? We should be absolutely striving towards greater equality um, and I really believe in our ability to do so. I really, really believe that social media will be will have a huge role to play in that. I think even looking at the past two years and the conversations we're having that I never would have thought were possible sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, period poverty, um, you know, body positivity movements, and just like burst the bubble of perfectionism on Instagram and just remind people of the the real world. I think it's good to <laughs> remind everyone of what's, you know, the important issues. Used in the right way, I think social media can start conversations that really ha- make a difference. And especially, you know, social media is predominantly used by the young and we're, you know, inheriting a world that we're not happy with and we're um, desperately striving for more. So it's not a European refugee crisis. Migration is a worldwide global issue that is only going to increase. So really it's up to us to be visionaries and to uh, reassess how we view borders in the modern era. I mean, how low can we get in terms of turning a blind eye and denying our like not only legal responsibility i mean these are this is law it's legal responsibility but also just moral responsibility to to help one of the things i always think about is what will our children's generation look back at about our lives and think what was that what were you thinking and i always think that yeah that's a good a good thing to remember that society is always progressing i think even though at the moment it sort of feels like we're taking a few steps back. I do feel hopeful about positive change. A 
loved hearing Alice talk about her experiences and storytelling, but I felt that we needed to take a step back. Alice really made me feel that everybody is just human and everybody deserves the right to live the best life that they possibly can. So I just didn't understand what was hindering people from doing so, from living a life in a safe country, and what the reality was in the UK with regards to policy. So next we spoke to Lisa Doyle from Refugee Council. They're a leading charity working with refugees and people seeking asylum in the UK. And there's kind of two prongs to their work. They support people with integration, they support unaccompanied children, and they offer therapeutic support. But they also use the experience of the people that they work with to highlight to government where problems lie within the system and to try and make the lives of those that arrived to the UK a bit better. So Lisa's now the head of advocacy at Refugee Council. And thinking about approaching this episode originally, it seems crazy that we considered not doing it because of our lack of personal experience. Like this to me sounds like a problem. We need to be doing our part in changing this unfair reality. And similarly to Alice, Lisa doesn't have a personal migration story. So our conversation began by Lisa telling me how she got started. I've always had an interest in fighting injustice and addressing inequality. I'm an academic by trade many, many years ago. Um, so my route in was through research. It was a, an issue that I didn't know a lot about at the time. Um, I had some basic knowledge. I, my uh, PhD and, and my academic work is in the field of human geography, so I understood at a basic level about human migration. But I knew there was a a lot of issues and a, a general sense of people not being treated right. At the time there was a lot in the press around refugees, lots of anti-anti-asylum narrative and it was you know, increasingly making frustrated and angry and, and uh, this was a, a really good opportunity to, to come and do some work which you know, provide practical assistance to people who had arrived in the UK and mm. to help them integrate. Do you know why that was, that kind of anti-asylum narrative? Uh, at the time, there were lots of issues around high numbers, or what were perceived as high numbers, uh, reaching the UK. So uh, the numbers peaked in 2002, and although they then reduced by 2005 to about the same level they are today, um, the, the narrative had continued. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of newspaper front pages about... You know, uh, sponges and people you know coming over here to take our houses and our jobs those kinds of things you know basic misunderstanding of what asylum is all about and uh, government wanting to actively reduce those numbers and looking for a way to reduce people reaching the UK or deter them by some misconception about why people arrive here and what research they might do about the system before they arrive here. 2015 was a really interesting moment and um, the general public became much more aware of refugees. You know, it's often talked about the refugee crisis, but actually it, it wasn't. The fact is it was when refugees reached Europe and therefore became a crisis in the mind of European governments, you know, forgetting the fact that 86% of the world's refugees live in developing countries. As Lisa Doyle was head of advocacy, I felt that she was best placed to tell us about the positive change that we should be advocating for. The UK does do a lot of work in terms of um, aid to regions surrounding 
um, areas of conflict, but we see very few refugees and, and people seeking asylum in the UK. So, you know, less than one percent of the world's refugees are in the UK. You know, three percent of the asylum applications across Europe last year were to the UK. Yet the narrative is we're doing lots. We don't want people coming here. It's a trick of geography where we. Are. If we were Italy, if we were Greece, our government would be saying slightly different things and, and we are making it as difficult as possible for people to reach the UK to claim asylum. You have to be physically present in the UK in order to put in an asylum claim and therefore the more barriers you put up to people reaching here, then the less responsibility we share. You know, we, we are a rich country um you know comparatively you know one in four of the population in lebanon is a refugee uh, I, I think we can do more than less than one percent of the world's population and there there have has been some movement are uh, the syrian um resettlement program you know twenty thousand people over five years that that's amazing um but that's due to expire um, in 2020 and we would like to see resettlement at least at that level continue so let's just go back to basics and start with a little language lesson. What is a migrant? What is a refugee? What's an asylum seeker? Refugees and people seeking asylum are migrants, but their issue here is about them being forced. It's about that element of choice. So the definition of the refugee is bound up in the Refugee Convention of, of 1951. So the Refugee Convention is the policy that Alice brought up earlier and that Lisa will go on to explain that's super outdated. So the Refugee Convention was drawn up after the horrors of the Second World War and what happened to people who were fleeing the Nazis and the fact that many countries turned people away. So there was an an agreement that convention needed to be set up so that that would never happen again. It's around you are forced to move, you are not making a choice and you are forced to move because you think your life is at risk for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. A refugee is a person who governments decide meet that definition. A person seeking asylum is when they've left their country of origin and they have formally applied in another country, but that application has yet been determined. They've got a legal right to be here, but their rights and entitlements are curtailed and it's not until they are granted refugee status where they can um, join mainstream society properly. If you are someone seeking asylum and have not got your status yet, you aren't allowed to work, you you have very, very little choice about where you live, so if you can prove that you're destitute and you've got no means to support yourself, then the government will um, give you accommodation and subsistence money but that accommodation you have no choice where that is so there's been a lot of controversy about standards of accommodation Um, you live on £37 a week and then you wait for your decision on your claim you go through that process but at that point you are you're kind of living in limbo you can't make choices there are restrictions in some rights and entitlements sort of access to education or student finance and then when you're granted refugee status if you're in that accommodation you're given 28 days to leave and your money is cut off you have to find somewhere to live and an alternative source of income in those 28 days bearing in mind you've not been allowed to work and that's a policy decision that makes no sense as a government they have said we know you can't go back we know you're at risk stay you know we'll protect you 
apart from in 28 days time we won't it's extremely challenging we've done lots of research in this area and last year we did some research and everyone that we spoke to who'd come through our service at the end of that 28 days no one had stable accommodation so it's the removal of those barriers so that people have a chance to shape their life in terms of the asylum seeking process there was a recent article in the bbc from the perspective of an asylum caseworker and it described decision making as a lottery and it's kind of like there are a couple of lotteries going on the first where you're born and then the second where we're kind of allowed to live so what's this process and this reality like it's perplexing for anyone going through it and scary you know there's a a, a lot at stake there you're often doing this not in your own language you know that you know, this is an important distinction around migration that those who have chosen to come to the UK and those who haven't, you know, if you've chosen to come to the UK as an economic migrant, there's a high probability that you will have English language skills because you have chosen this place in order to come and work. Um, if you're forced to flee um, and you're forced to put your lives in the hands of smugglers because there are no safe and regular routes to get into the UK, then you can actually end up anywhere. You know, we, we know people, they, they pay their smuggler, they're in the back of a lorry and then they come out and they don't know what country they're in. So they're not prepared in that way. They're, they're, they don't have that, that kind of support there. So you have to prove that you are at risk. The evidential threshold can be quite high. Sometimes people find it difficult to show that it's, it's them personally. And... There's a lack of consistency, I guess, and, and that's what came out in the, that article, that uh, what we would like to see is a fair process that gives people the opportunity to make their claim properly. And this involves also having the right type of legal support and, and being able to talk through how that goes. The, the fact is that the Home Office consistently gets decisions wrong, so about a third of initial um, negative decisions are overturned on appeal. You know that's a huge number of people, and they, those are people who initially get a decision and think, "I've got to go back there," and I'm terrified. I am still at risk. I may lose my life if I go back there. There is some inconsistent decision making, and these are life and death decisions, and they've got to be right. If you get these decisions wrong and people return, you know you could be putting them at risk. A common misconception is that people want to come to England. They're fleeing their home simply because they've heard great things about the UK and want to live there. There are so many things that are wrong with this narrative, but a fundamental element that's missing is a failure to acknowledge everything people are leaving behind to come to a new country. It's not a decision that's taken lightly. It's the circumstances that have forced them to flee, but they're fleeing their country, but also their families, their communities, their jobs, their schools, their education, their skills. And for us, a big issue at the moment is around um, refugee family reunion. So when you are granted refugee status, you have a right to apply for some of your family members to join you. But who you can apply to join you is incredibly restrictive. You come to the UK, you're granted status, and then you realise you cannot bring those people who you are completely worried about at at all times and you know are at risk because they're living in the same situation that you've lived in. If you're a child refugee who has arrived on your own, um, 
once you're granted refugee status, the UK doesn't allow any children to have family reunion rights. And that's rare. So we're one of two or three countries in Europe that don't allow that. So you have a child who's taken that journey, left everything behind, but will still likely have relations, even their parents, because parents send children to safety and you get your decision, yes, you're a refugee, you can stay in the UK and you can be safe. But with that comes a, but you can never live with your family again. And we think that's wrong. A lot of what Lisa is talking about is change that's required on a national governmental level. But Lisa also really recognises the importance of change within local communities. A lot of it's around day-to-day interaction. So often the people who are most suspicious of refugees and people seeking asylum are those who have never met people. Um, you look at polling around the you know, areas in the country that's most anti-migration, it tends to be the whitest areas. So actually facilitating daily interaction, trying to support refugee community organisations and how they, they've got an integration role within locally within their own communities, getting people into employment, getting people volunteering, setting up sports club, cricket, football, those kinds of things actually that has a ripple effect within communities and lots of this sort of local level work is more important than national campaigns I think. When they talk to individuals about what they fled, what their experiences are, what their hopes and aspirations are and how they just want safety then that's much more manageable for people to think about and and to empathise with what would I do, how would I feel if this happened to me. And, you know, Syria was a stable country. It was a country that actually hosted many, many refugees itself for very, very many years. And that turned very quickly. And people living in Syria would have thought they were in a stable country. You know, that's a real shock. So, you know, trying to get people to think about what it would be like for them. I really wanted to talk to Lisa about language. When I was describing the episode originally, I would say victims of war, poverty and natural disaster. And then the more that I researched, the more I thought, actually, maybe victims isn't the correct language that I should be using. In fact, going back to Alice's interview, she discussed how she actively tries not to portray people as victims. Survivors is a better one in in many ways, although when you're trying to talk to people who don't understand why people might flee, then it partly depends on your audience that the word victim does show the kind of forced migration I tend to talk about people seeking asylum, not asylum seekers. We talk about child refugees. The child is first. You know, those kinds of things. It's it's remembering there's a human being there who has agency and who is a person. I think what you've just said is so powerful. Just changing refugee to child refugee instantly humanises. And same with the person seeking asylum. I think that's such a great distinction. The technical term that's used in, in sort of the Home Office and these fields is unaccompanied asylum-seeking child or children, but that gets shortened to you ask all the time and you hear people talking about you asks, you know, for me, just... Oh, it makes me shudder because yeah. it suddenly turns a human into numbers and statistics yeah. and... Into an acronym. acronym. <laughs> a human into an acronym. Terminology is really important. Illegal. Illegal immigrants. No human is illegal. It's, you know, behaviours can be outside the law, but... I think that's incredibly problematic. So finally I spoke to Lisa about the power of the public, using our voices and things like social media to demonstrate public support for better treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum. 
And Lisa also mentioned how incredibly important it can be to show solidarity and also to counteract this kind of anti-migration narrative that surrounded the UK post-Brexit. One of the examples that we spoke about is hashtag Rivers of Love. 50 years ago, Enoch Powell delivered a speech that soon became known as Rivers of Blood. It was hateful and racist and he was kind of like the Trump or Nigel Farage of his time. In April, Radio 4 decided to recite the entire speech, which was hugely criticised for publicising such a deeply problematic message and suggested that it was an example of normalised racism. As a backlash, people got to Twitter and shared and celebrated their wonderful multicultural families and loved ones using the hashtag Rivers of Love. Yeah, there, there is hope. The, the Rivers of Love made me cry. It was because it just felt so... <laughs> Look, you, you said this about my family, this is my family. Again, it's about humanising, it's people telling their stories and people you know, personally pushing back that narrative. And I do think you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to hope for. Perfect. I think that's a lovely place to end. Thanks, Lisa. Okay. After hearing from Lisa, we felt it was so important to hear from somebody who had their own story. Lasse's story is upsetting, but it's also not uncommon. Listening back to Lisa's interview, I realised how the experiences and processes that she talks about are exactly what Nas has gone through. You'll hear Nas tell his life story condensed to about 15 minutes, but I spoke to Nas for hours and hours, and at 22 years old, he really is an incredible person. I was born in Afghanistan, and I um, left my country in 2009, and... Um, First it started, um, the Taliban used to come to my house uh, and they said to my dad, you have to join us. There was join, uh, there was a recruiting people by force of you don't go. And then they said, if you don't come, if you don't come, we will come and take you. So they came at night and they took him by force. The Taliban used to come again, they used to take me. They used to take me to a, a place where they training and they trying to brainwash people and um, they used to train young people so they used to take me like five days six days a week and just you know trying to brainwash me by force and um, show me how to become a you know suicide bomber like you know explode yourself you know when they uh, the taliban came again they attacked my house and they broke the window which i have a scar so uh, when they took me to hospital and then from hospital, I woke up there and then I was there for some time. And then when the people brought me back to home, I asked the neighbor, I said, where is my mom? And she said, um, she's at Aji's house and your brother and sisters has been killed. And I, uh, she told me that. And then when I went to my mom, she told me as well. My mom was very upset and she said, you have to leave the place. And she handed me to a smuggler. The smuggler brought me to Kabul, from Kandahar, sorry, to Kabul, which is the capital in Afghanistan. I was there for about three months in their house. They wouldn't let me anywhere from the house. And then when I was there, he gave me to other smuggler. He brought me to Iran, and then from Iran to Turkey, and then from Greek to Italy, and then from Italy to France, and then from France to here. For listeners outside of the UK, the city Calais in northern France is the main crossing point for anyone wishing to come to the UK, and because of its proximity, huge encampments have been set up, most famously the Calais jungle which was shut down in 2016. It was very bad and um, uh, 
my my friend was killed in Calais. Uh, I just made him was very good friend. Um, he was thrown from the lorry. I didn't pass in the lorry. He was um he was in another lorry. We was living in a tent in Calas. So we was going like you know not together just like um, other people as well like the separate separate not together. So he was died in 2009 and uh, he was very good friend. So when I came here in 2010, in the beginning of 2010, I arrived to um, Northampton. That was my first place. So I came there. I was in the lorry with uh, two other people, and I think they was from Iran. So the police came and they they took us to a police station. A good interpreter, and then he was translating on the phone, and I was speaking to him. After that, police said to me, "We will take you to um, foster care, foster family. We will put you there." I said, "Okay." And then in the morning, they took me to foster family, which was in country. It was Afghan family. I was there for some time, for about one month, one and a half months. And after that, I had to move because the the family had a baby, and they said we have a lot of responsibility and I'm working as well. He said so. Uh, my social worker came. She took me to uh, Birmingham. Uh, I was very scared. I was very, very scared. Uh, I thought, what's going on, man? You know where I am. And um, yeah, it was very uh, tough journey. Uh, but when I got here, uh, they fostered me to Afghan family. Well, I'm Afghan as well. And um, he was speaking to me in his language. In Afghanistan, there is different, different languages like here, Welsh, English, mm -hmm. and other. So he was speaking to me. I understand his language as well, and I thought, okay, that's good. Then you know, I'm safe now. You know, uh, he said, you know, these things, this journey never happened to you again. You here in the UK, and people is good. I will protect you and stuff. So that's good. Then and then after that, uh, I got better, and I was happy. So I stayed there, and then I started going to school there. I started from year nine. I worked very hard, and I studied. And then after that, I went to college and I studied their public services. So yeah, it's been a challenge, challenging. Now, when I think back, you know, I came a long way. So many things that Nas touched on are reflected in what Lisa mentioned. You know, a vulnerable child coming to the UK with smugglers, not knowing where he's going to end up, not being able to speak English and also leaving behind his family. But what Lisa didn't touch on was the impact of the move on someone's identity. Now, I ignorantly thought that living in a new country, yet knowing the culture of another, would be what someone would find difficult. But actually, for Nas, it was the other way around. He's lived here since he was 13. So actually, he has no understanding of what life would possibly be like if he had to go back to Afghanistan. At the moment, I'm actually very uh, worried. Because after nine years, is is you know, it's very hard to live there now. And uh, me, I came as a child when I left my village. I was I can't remember. I was probably about um, twelve and a half or thirteen years old. And now I don't even remember my village way way is like. It's very different because I'm I'm changed a lot. I'm changed a lot, and um, I built a good life here, and I learn a lot. People saying to me sometimes you should be proud, you know, like, you know, you couldn't even say ABC before when you came here. But now you obtained a level three uh, public service diploma certificates in a, in a public services. So, yeah, I worked very hard here. And I think um, 
the culture I did everything what people doing for example with my foster family I celebrated Christmases I uh, went to um, other events such as uh, like a family weekends like on camping uh, mm-hmm. to different different places BNB I'm just used to be here like I guess is your identity all wrapped up in England now your friends everyone's in Birmingham I mean you went to the royal wedding didn't you <laughs> yeah 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 I went there as well yeah 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 <laughs> So you're feeling pretty British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good to be honest with you, yeah. Sometime when I'm not thinking, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm born here seriously. And then when I, the immigration things comes to my mind and things and stuff, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'm from Afghanistan, I was born there. <laughs> seriously. And so, yeah, in Afghanistan it will be very difficult because uh, I don't even know anybody there. My mom and my brother, I don't know where they are. So it has been 10 years now, and I was spoken to them. The Red Cross is uh, trying to uh, find them, but the Red Cross sent me a letter. They said, your village was very dangerous, and we won't be able to access in the future. Really? So here you ask me a question. I've been here for all these years. I mean, I can tell you the, you know, I mean, ask me a question about for example, Coventry, London, about Birmingham, mm-hmm. other places. I can tell you, but Afghanistan, I don't remember that much about mm-hmm. Afghanistan. So at the moment, I'm in a very difficult situation. I feel like I am stuck. I can't even go anywhere. At the moment, I'm in fear of maybe the home office return me back to where I came from a long time ago. And I don't even call my home that country anymore because I had a, such a bad experience, you know, to that dark country. I don't want to go back. There is no human value for the poor people, you know, like here. Of people, for example, no matter wh- wherever you are, prime minister or rich person, powerful, you have to obey the law of this country, which, which is really good. But in Afghanistan, in poor countries, uh, other countries as well, of you, do something bad yeah really bad such as murder and the police comes and they know you you committed this crime and the murder gives money to the police the police will release them so like what happened to me and my family and my you know um uh, they should have protected the government because the government has a responsibility to stop the crimes and protect the country and uh, stop the corruptions so that's why it's uh, difficult for me to live there so as far as i was aware naz was a guy who had fled afghanistan as a child because it was dangerous his dad had been kidnapped his brother and sister murdered and his mother decided that he had to flee you know you don't hand your child over to a smuggler unless you truly believe that that's the only choice in order for them to survive and then he'd been in the uk for nine years And so what I couldn't work out was why had he not been granted asylum? Why was he living his life in limbo? What was the process he was going through and what impact can that have on an individual? I think um, when I came here, yeah, I want to be honest with you. They should have granted me. They should have gave me indefinite leave to remain, uh, you know, which is the five years after that. They can give you another one and then you can become a British citizen. They said, we don't believe you. Why would they have any reason not to believe you? They said, yeah, uh, you don't have evidence 
what happened to your family and i saw the court papers other day it says you know you came that young and you got that much power in your case like an adult and i was like that's what happened to me of course i'm i'm, I'm gonna tell you the truth that's what happened that's why i seen on my own eyes they didn't accepted my case and they gave me a discussion relief until the age of 17 and a half when i turned to 17 and a half my uh, they gave me three years and a half status so once that finished i appear applied to uh, extended so after that my life became a bit drama but i feel like you know i've been here like nine years now uh you spend it for example that much money on me like to school obviously you know the government paying things and stuff i can't even apply for any job at the moment i can't uh, you know um, i'm the type the type of person you know i want to work hard on my own hands you know i don't like government money you know i don't want to put pressure on the government they should have granted me now so now i'm a i'm an adult i'm 22 years old and I can get a good job. For example, if I get a job in a fire service or police, I can contribute to the country. I can pay taxes. I can help people, you know. People like me here, you know, some people think, you know, oh, they're criminals, or oh, they came from different country, or oh, they do bad things and stuff. Not all the same. There is, you can find good people and bad people in every society. You know, uh, no matter where they're where they from, where they came from. I don't think it seems alright, you know. Now after nine years, they're saying to me, you could go back and you have been educated and uh, you adult. I'm not an um, economic immigrant. I'm just uh, terrified at the moment. Just uh, worried and scared and uh, I don't know what's going to happen, where I'm going to be living, uh, living, where my future is. So it's affected me a lot to be honest with you. The system is not right. The system seems a bit long and um, is making people physically and, and mentally tired. And it's putting a lot of a lot of pressure on people and is affecting people. I seen this. It's very scary, you know. And there is a lot of people in the same situation as me. You mentioned about how the government have been great in a way because you have a roof over your head. Yeah. But at the same time there's you can't be independent. You told me the other day that you had um, tried to get a job at Sainsbury's and you couldn't because you don't have a passport. Yeah, yeah. My uh, teacher as well um, from college, he, he messaged me uh, at the end of 2017. He said to me, would you, would you like to, uh, to become a self-employed with me? He's um, doing gardening job. He left the teaching and he started the gardening business. So I worked with him as well. So I went there as well and uh, he actually liked my work. I'm good with the garden work. Nice. So yeah. And he said, uh, he texted me, he said, uh, would you be able to come and work for me as a, as a self-employed? And um, I said, I'm sorry, I, I won't be able uh, at the moment because my case has been exhausted and I'm in a very difficult situation. I'm running around now. I'm going to MP, I'm calling the MP, I'm going to other places, friends. <laughs> to um, write my references, letters, so I'm making another application now. Yeah, so for people that aren't aware, when you say your case has been exhausted, what does that mean? That means like it's fully, the home life is finished. I can't appeal to the court at the moment. Like before, when they uh, refused my case, I was able to appeal to the first day tribunal, the court, special for um, immigration. Uh, I mean, I'm more worried, worried to go back 
you know uh, I won't be able to live there so I will see what's gonna happen you know I have trust in God you know um, he can turn around you know because you never know what's gonna happen so that's why I have hope so God, uh, yeah God has the plan I think what's really incredible about Nas is that he recognizes the importance of his own voice it can't be easy to talk about such experiences but he doesn't just consider what telling his story might mean for him, but all of the other people who have equal stories and hardship and deserve to live their life and not be scared of what could happen. This is personally very important to me uh, to tell people about my stories because there is a lot of people in the same situation as me. And there was a quote from Martin Luther King. He says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matters. So I want to tell the world, you know, I think this, this is very important uh, because it can, if it doesn't help me, it's going to help other people uh, is because there is a lot of people in the same situation as me. So we need to speak up sometime, uh, tell other people. I, I kept for the last nine years quiet, uh, uh, even I was a bit shy to tell people, I was a bit, you know, don't tell anybody, but now I can tell anyone. <laughs> thank you so much, Dan. Yeah, thank you. Now, we can't forget that the drop is a creative dive into big issues. So in addition to Alice, who uses portraiture to tell human stories, we spoke to Lucy Orta, a Paris-based visual artist and one half of internationally acclaimed Studio Orta, along with her husband, Jorge, to talk about creative and interesting ways of engaging large audiences with topics such as migration and environmentalism. Lucy confronts reality head-on with her work, and in 1992 she created refuge wear, which were essentially wearable tents. So you've been working in the space now for over 25 years, so I wondered whether your perception of reality had changed, or whether you'd seen mm. any progress, or even whether your idea of utopia had changed in that time. Back in 1992 when I began making the refuge wear, people wouldn't have imagined it would have gone against human dignity to have a, a human being living in a tent on the street and it was heavily criticised by intellectuals um, in France at the time. And um, now, 25 years on, it's very normal for us to see um, young people living in tents, homeless people living in tents, and now hundreds and even thousands of people in, in villages living in tents um, in Paris because of the migrant crisis, refugees arriving into the city and setting up encampments. In a sense, this, this precarity, the human condition, has worsened over the last 25 years. The work I was doing um, heralded, in a way, that happening. And uh, one of the people that I think was, who was really visionary, who supported the work and who um, who wrote about it was Paul Virilio and um, he's a philosopher so perhaps philosophers have the capacity then to project into the future he said you know this is this is what the future will look like uh, so 25 years on you know we are you know we are living in uh, a world of camps. Following an expedition to Antarctica in 2007 Studio Auto created the Antarctica World Passport, which was a project that questioned what it meant to be world citizens in an age where borders are removed virtually, but still very much exist physically. It was part of that Antarctica body of work, and it's interesting because it's the only politically neutral region on Earth. 
In fact, the Antarctic Treaty, which unites over 50 nations, decrees Antarctica as a continent dedicated to scientific research in order to protect the environment and encourage international participation. And as this is a participatory peace, you can obtain an Antarctica World Passport, but it means you have to abide by a set of conditions. For the Antarctica World Passport, there are a set of conditions that um, people have to sign up to um, when they want to apply for a passport. So um, to become a world citizen, you have to act in favour of sustainable development through simple daily acts, defend natural environments under threat, to fight against climate change generated by human activity, and to support humanitarian actions aiding displaced persons in the world. And then the final one, to share values of peace and equality. So for, I would say, more than 90%, maybe 95% of people coming to our passport office and wanting to become a world citizen agree with those, but there are a small percentage that don't agree with some of those values, some of those conditions. Which ones don't they agree with? They don't say exactly, but I would imagine in view of everything that's been happening in terms of migration and displacement over the last three or four years that the clause to support humanitarian actions aiding displaced persons of the world may be something. People have become more averse to migrants looking for, seeking for asylum due to the mass influx of refugees and asylum seekers into the European Union. So the Passport Project allows people to think about these issues and more specifically what we're hoping to do is to raise awareness around the increase of migration due to climate disasters, climate-induced disasters. That is that climate-induced displacement is set to increase as has already been reported by the United Nations. Migration isn't exactly dinner table conversation, let alone climate-induced displacement. This is the reason why I find Lucy's work so interesting, because she's bringing up these big and often alien topics in very public arenas through the Antarctica World Passport Office. When it's in a very public forum like the COP Climate Summit or the Freeze Projects, so literally hundreds of people start queuing for a passport, are interested in the project. And unfortunately, we can't engage with every single mm. person that is signing up because those queues accumulate. So we try as much as possible to supply information. We have a little uh, pamphlet that we hand out which talks about some of those issues and the questions in there. But when we do have the occasion when, uh, when a member of the public really wants to engage it, we try as much as possible to do that. I've had citizens that don't agree at all with supporting actions against aiding displaced persons and talked about it openly and their reasons for doing that. Depending on the location that the passport office is set up, there is different kinds of engagement. And of course, we did have um, a large majority of the citizens wanting to sign up who already knew about uh, climate-induced displacement, who were very aware of um, the issues affecting climate change, but they were very excited to get the passport. And we also had the general public, an Antarctic explorer, but we also had the great-granddaughter of Scott, um, who had seen it advertised and who had come specifically to get her passport in honour oh. of her great-grandfather. So there are moments like that which are absolutely fantastic that you take away with you. I think, yes, the passport message is getting out. Yeah. And it's getting to uh, the right people, but it's also getting to new people. Mm. Well, in terms of engagement, we often talk about, I guess, echo chambers. And I wondered whether sometimes at the summits, whether it's if it's about climate change or the, the COP summit, 
are you engaging people that are already interested and are you interested in engaging people that perhaps have never thought about it or even climate change deniers no absolutely um uh, i mean the fact that the passport offices are in very public venues not only the cop um, 21 venue or the, the climate forum we're in galleries contemporary art museums uh Passports are being requested from citizens all over the world, not through necessarily the networks. So we specifically engage with like the contemporary art or the museums. We also know that we're being requested now through organisations like the International Weather Forum and the, the COP organisations to distribute it. So abilities are vast to engage with different kinds of people. And specifically on the passport office, you can see the citizens all over the world in the different countries, down to the tiniest village, mm. um, from you know the Pacific Islands up to you know the mega cities of, of mm. Delhi and New York. So there's a huge uh, cross section of populations all over the world, with the potential then to you know become part of this community mm. activator what is your idea of success is it for people to go home and take up action or is it just people to start thinking and maybe being a bit more welcoming around mass migration Mm -hmm. one of the measures of successes could be that we continue to be invited to create the passport offices and distribute passports um, in different venues around the world and the next passport office will be at the international forum of weather which is taking place in paris in june and this is the first time that they're introducing contemporary art as a means to engage with the general public around issues pertaining to weather patterns and of course climate change. Yeah, you could say that that's very successful Mm. because it means that we're um, entering into dialogue with new people in situations where people are are generally interested in becoming more aware about uh, climate and to encounter a project like this which allows them to think differently about how climate might affect not only our planet but also the people that live in the planet is really important. Another measure of success is um, the fact that passports uh, are requested um, on a regular basis through the um, online passport office. So those continue to go out every day, so that means that the word is spreading and that more people want to join the community. People signing up for the passport want to be engaged on another level. We've been thinking about how how we can take the passport through to a next phase whereby those that are signed up and on the database around the world may be able to act collectively on a specific issue with their Antarctica world citizenship. I want to talk finally about human futures and dreams and hopes and ideas. There's a quote by Oscar Wilde that says, progress is the realization of utopias. And then also read an article where Jorge had said, utopias are disappearing behind money and success. It's up to us to show youth the possibility of these ideas. And the idea of utopias are also criticised. So do you believe the idea of a utopia is important? And what visions of utopia do you believe are necessary? Um, well, Jorge wrote a manifesto about utopia and um, he lived through what um, was considered you know, the, ut- the utopian youth of the 70s looking for the new futures and also lived through the frustration that the utopia couldn't be realised. So based on that manifest, um, we're thinking that utopia 
should be a functional utopia, something that could actually exist, something that we can build on, something that is possible. So we're very positive about changes that can be made through our artistic processes. We call that catalyst art or artists mediating change, all kinds of different terms, operational aesthetics. So we're very hopeful in the possibility of utopias being realised. Perhaps the utopias are made visible through the work we do, in particular the passport office. And if we can all act together to defend these natural environments in favour of sustainable development and support progress, human progress, peace and equality. So it's possible and uh, the Antarctica project, the merging on all those, those nations, each person keeping their individual identity, but there's kind of these blurring of the borders, fusing together in a natural process perhaps. Yeah, we want to see that realised. Yeah. I wanted to end the interview by talking about human futures and Antarctica for you was a metaphor for peace and for hope. So what gives you hope about the future of humanity in an age of climate change? Um, what I'm really hopeful about is that technology can be harnessed to bring more people together to help mediate discussions and communities in the future on a more efficient and a larger scale. So this was a long episode and I get it if you're feeling overwhelmed. But after speaking to all of our guests, I felt an even stronger desire to change the narrative and the experience of refugees and people seeking asylum. So I wanted to leave it to Alice and Lisa to tell us what we can be doing to help create positive change. I, every single day, get messages. How can I get involved with the refugee crisis? What can I do? Where can I volunteer? Who can I speak to? And I always obviously point them towards Help Refugees, (laughs) the amazing group of women who sort of had no humanitarian experience whatsoever just like you and I and was so shocked by what they saw in Calais that they really got organised and very very quickly within months became the biggest distributors of grassroots aid across Europe and to this day have raised million I mean I think more over eight million pounds in just three years. It's the obvious donate to a charity to help, but also volunteering opportunities, you know, sharing your skills, being a mentor. There are lots of opportunities now, and, and more so than there have been for quite some time. But generally, it, it's trying to create that kind of positive atmosphere and, and uh, reflecting a Britain that is welcoming and, and helping people to rebuild their lives. Being curious and being self-aware as well. All these conversations about white privilege, not only white privilege, but the inherited privilege of where we're born as well. Like it's a lottery whether you're born in Somalia or London and that has a massive impact on the course of your life. And we don't really talk about nationality yet as this inherited privilege, but but it is. I'd also like to add that if NASA's story stuck with you, since we spoke, he has launched a campaign on change.org and it'll be linked in the show notes. I know for sure that he appreciates every single signature on that petition. The Drop is produced by myself, Amy Foster-Taylor, as well as Claire Wees, Bronwyn Sire and Pippa Smart. We'd like to thank our four guests from this episode, Alice Aidy, Lisa Doyle, Naz Papalzi and Lucy Orta. Our funky music is produced by Troy Hewson.